Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Compliance Institute in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. I'm Cathy Jacobs, former president of the Compliance Institute and a compliance professional for over 20 years, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. In the Compliance Files podcast series, we have been examining the different important roles that compliance professionals interact with, and some of whom are our key stakeholders in our Voice of series. So today, we thought we would explore the role of internal audit and how it interacts with compliance. Compliance can be described as a process of adhering to obligations derived from laws, regulations, industry and organisational standards, contractual corporate commitments, values, sanctions, ethics, and corporate policies and procedures. While the compliance function is designed to support an organisation in complying with all those requirements, the internal audit function should monitor and evaluate the company's internal control environment and examine its adequacy, efficiency, and effectiveness. Working together, compliance and internal audit can help an organisation's senior leaders understand how much the business is or isn't meeting important regulatory expectations. Also, we can't forget that the compliance function itself is also an auditee, just like our first-line colleagues and teams. So I'm delighted to welcome today Anno Taylor. Anno is a partner in Deloitte Ireland Risk Advisory. She has over 15 years' experience of the financial services sector in internal auditing, controls assurance and external auditing, gained through her time in industry and practice. Anno leads out on Deloitte's internal audit and controls assurance offering to the insurance and investment management sectors. She also holds the role of Head of Internal Audit, PCF 13, for a number of insurance undertakings. Anno is a Chartered Accountant and Associate Member of the Institute of Internal Auditors for Ireland and the UK and holds a Master's Degree in Accounting. Anno is here today to discuss with me her role in internal audit. So welcome to the Compliance Files podcast, Anlo, and thank you very much for uh, talking to us today. Good morning, Cassie, and delighted to be here today. Thank, thanks for the opportunity. Um, looking forward to the conversation. Yes, um, thanks, Anlo. Yes, I think it's going to be very relevant for, for our listeners. So if we start with yourself, Anlo, could you take us through your career and what has been your career path and I suppose what drew you to internal audit as a career? Okay, and uh, sure. Yes, so really my career started as a, a trainee accountant uh, to get the chartered accountancy of qualification uh, in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, I joined uh, Deloitte in Cape Town at that stage and uh, completed my uh, traineeship and then I moved over to Deloitte in Ireland. So the first part of my career was very much in the external audit space. And I suppose, you know, during that time, I really got a, a great appreciation for ethics 
and uh, you know just the importance of doing everything you do ethical and the the in, the value that uh, the market put on an external audit opinion. Then after that, I decided I wanted to go into industry to get a different perspective. So uh, during my time in Ireland, I then moved into a, a general insurance uh, company in Ireland. And I took up the role of their head of internal audit and also added to my portfolio was uh, the Italian operation. So I was basically overseeing the, the Irish and the Italian operation as the head of internal audit. And and then subsequent to that, I, I took a career break for family reasons. And then I came back to Ireland uh, in 2013. I rejoined uh, Deloitte, and at that stage, I started to build the, the internal audit uh, client base, uh, firstly in the insurance uh, space, but then also moving on to the investment management space. Uh, now, you, you know, you had this question around what we need to internal audit, which is a really good question. Uh, what became apparent to me during my external audit years is that uh, you know, when you do external audit, you, you're very much focused on the numbers firstly, and then financial reporting controls. And I always felt a little bit frustrated that I wanted to understand the business beyond financial reporting controls. And that is really what drew me to internal audit to get that uh, into a helicopter view of how organizations work and operate. It is the piece that I found interesting. Uh, for that reason, I went into that internal audit role in the insurance industry, and I suppose I, I've never gone back, which is probably a testimony that it, it was the right thing for me to do. Um, thanks, Sam, though. Um, and, and you've obviously had a very wide-ranging career, both in external and, and internal audit um, in financial services. Could you give us, you know, maybe a high and a low um, in your career to date, and what did you learn from those? Yeah, that, that's a difficult question. And um, I suppose I wouldn't put it as highs and lows, right? Um, because in general, I really enjoyed my career so far. What I would say is I obviously had challenges. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the, the biggest challenge when you're in external audit is always the, the deadline and, and the work pressure around, you know, getting the work complete. Uh, to issue those uh, audited financial statements in line uh, with the board meeting deadlines. So uh, I think what I learned from that is probably, you know, to be really resilient and to really plan your time uh, effectively. And then also to, uh, you know, probably stick up your hand early enough so that if, if you if you see that you're not going to meet the deadline, that there's any risk of that to rather uh, call it out and get help than to leave it until you've actually nearly missed the deadline and then it's too late for everyone. So, uh, I mean, if I think back to my external order days, that was probably the biggest challenge. If I look at my internal order days, uh, I think uh, the, the biggest challenge there, uh, especially in recent years, is probably the whole piece around doing specialized audits and that sometimes you can't control those audits because you don't have that in-depth knowledge. And, and I think the, the learning from that is, is probably for me that you just have to uh, 
you know, support the SMEs and, uh, you know, work with them rather than trying to, to control what they do uh, all of the time because you just don't have the right skill sets uh, to do so. Thanks, Anlo. And I think those lessons are uh, valuable ones and ones that will um, support, you know, compliance professionals, actually, you know, the, um, you know, planning your time effectively and sticking up your hand early enough um, definitely is something that, you know, would serve us well. And also, you know, supporting supporting the business um, as well as, you know, being that, having that independent mindset. So if we could move on to the your role in internal audit. So what are, what are the challenges? Um, could you give our compliance community an insight into the challenges of being an internal auditor? I think the, the, these, these two main challenges, if, if I look at, you know, my role as a head of internal audit in industry before and now in professional services, uh, the, the first area would really be the piece around stakeholder management. I mean, you have such a vast array of stakeholders that you have to manage as a head of internal audit. And that gets more pronounced if you have a role uh, where you're within a subsidiary and there's a group internal audit function as well, or you deal with other subsidiaries. So so you have a, a myriad of stakeholders and many times those stakeholders are from different cultures and, and you do have to manage all of that uh, like very finely uh, against this backdrop of you need to stay independent in the midst of all of that. And so I think that's a key area. And then the other key area, uh, which I probably alluded to in my previous response, is, is just around the expectation of what internal audit cover and, you know, the grace of skill set uh, that the internal audit function either have to have internally or, or obtain. And then even for you as a head of internal order to oversee those areas where maybe you you aren't the expert in that area. If I look back at, you know, when I was head of internal order maybe 10 years ago, um, you know, the expectation from internal order, the types of audits you did, as a head of internal order, you had a lot of knowledge on those type of topics. And you felt very comfortable uh, to challenge uh, the field work and the team that did the work. Thanks, Anlo. Yes, and again, some of those challenges would re resonate with with compliance professionals because we too would serve uh, the whole range of stakeholders internally and, and externally. And yeah, I think it's a good way of um, expressing the, you know the expectation gap because again, our clients or our internal customers can can have a an unrealistic expectation of what we can do especially you know in in second line so um that's interesting that you know you experience that in, in internal audit so what are your strategies for dealing with those challenges uh, on the on the piece around the stakeholder management i think the only thing you can really do is to just be very aware and self-aware of those different stakeholders and, you know, nearly in your own mind go through what are their focus areas, you know, what are their agendas uh, and, and what are the culture that they come from? You know, when, you, when you're in situations where you have to agree findings or, you know, maybe tell a CEO that you have found a high finding, uh, 
you know, what is your strategy in relation to that person's culture and how they view, uh, you know, challenging situations to land that message within. So I think that's around the, the stakeholder piece. And I mean, the other piece is just always to be very mindful of independence, um, you know, the, the balance between the independence, but then also that you need to maintain a relationship. So, so I think the awareness piece is key for the piece around the, the specialized audit and, and, you know, having to do internal audits of, of topics that you don't have the direct skill sets and experience. I mean, the, the only way really you can deal with those is to either uh, recruit people with the skill sets to actually execute those audits or you enter into some sort of a arrangements either with your wider group internal audit function that might have these skills uh, or with a professional services firm. So, so to, to get the skills, you know, you have to have a plan around that. And then around the, the overseeing those audits and, you know, how I deal with them personally is um, to certainly uh, obscure yourself as far as possible, even if it's just to the level that you understand the governance and framework that apply to those topics. So say, for example, if I take a cybersecurity internal audit, uh, I would never be able to understand a technical cyber control. But what I can very clearly understand is, you know, governance around cybersecurity, uh, reporting to the board, uh, you know, having defined roles and responsibilities, having frameworks in place. So I think that's the other piece that I do, upskill myself as far as I can on those specialized topics without being the specialist. Thanks, Anno. Um, those, those are great uh, tips for, for our community as well. So being very aware of, of your stakeholder uh, population and, and, and really understanding their agenda um, and being very mindful, we have to be very mindful of our, our second line, which I always say is a, is a mindset and, you know, upskill, which is actually what Compliance Institute is all about. So um, good, <laughs> good to hear that. So just turning to, you know, the the day to day management of, of your function and uh, you know, sort of how it operates. Could you take our listeners through firstly the overall cycle of internal audit, whether that's annual, two year or three year? And then what does an individual sort of typical audit look like? So if I start with the, uh, the overall internal audit cycle, I think uh, core to the way I look at that whole process is that it needs to be a, a risk-based uh, audit plan that you set. Now, normally what you would find is that organizations or their head of internal audit would set a three-year plan. We, we see that often. But what I would say key to that for me is that it is only the first year or the upcoming year of that three-year plan that the audit committee approves. The other two years, I always only present uh, as an outlook plan to give the committee a comfort of how we address the different uh, cycles or, or processes across the plan. So the, the way that process works, in, in my experience, is that first and foremost, you have to identify what we refer to as your internal audit universe. So, you know, really, what are all of the core processes, uh, be they governance processes, be they 
core search line processes or be they support function processes that make up the totality of the organization uh, that we need to consider which of those do we think we need to perform an internal audit on. So once you've set that, what I call the internal audit universe, uh, the next step is to apply this risk-based approach. So where you go about writing each of those processes on an inherent risk basis as well as a residual risk basis. And then it's down to uh, annotating the audits so that you use the audit budget in those business cycles uh, that uh, introduces the highest risk to the organization. Um, so, so that's in a nutshell how that process works, maybe just for the benefit of the listeners. I mean, the practicalities of it is that the head of internal audit would normally have conversations with uh, management. During that process, we are also very uh, cognizant of what the second line of defense do. So uh, personally, where I do it, I would always ask for risk registers for compliance, uh, monitoring plans for compliance team reviews. Uh, so that we can see if there's any combined assurance that we can rely on and use the internal audit budget as efficiently as possible. And then we have that iterative process with management where we come to an agreement on the risk ratings and where the audit should occur. Of course, the head of internal audit has the final say. But again, uh, you know, especially if you have mature regulated organization, uh, management and internal order both want to achieve uh, the plan that gives them the most comfort about those risky areas. So I find it, it's never a hostile process. It, it's always a process that, that works very uh, collaborative and iterative. And then that is the plan then at the end of internal order takes to the audit committee for the first year to be approved. So that's on the, the piece around the setting of the three-year plan. And just for the, the typical audit, I think it, it's important to say that, you know, you, you get a typical audit, uh, like what people would have done maybe five years ago, uh, which was the classical waterfall audit where you do your planning, you do your field work, you do your uh, review process of the file, and then you do the reporting. But it's very much a waterfall process where one follow the other. And the, the new way of doing that has been emerging over the last couple of years is to implement agile uh, internal auditing. And, you know, certainly from my perspective, where I can, where clients are open to it, uh, we implement an agile internal auditing process uh, using a, a strong framework. And what that means is that we we take the internal audit review and we break it into a sprint of, of the different uh, areas in scope. And then within those sprints, we actually follow those traditional cycles of, you know, for, for that body of risks or, uh, you know, for that subset of a wider process, we would do the planning, we would execute the field work and, and review the, the work papers, and then we will report on that if I can say, subset of the scope before we move on to the next one. So what you do find is in this sort of uh, uh, agile approach, you can you can give your auditee quicker feedback and, and you can also uh, restate the scope if it needs to be early on in the process. 
Uh, so, so that's basically, in a nutshell, the cycle. I, I don't know if, if you need any more detail on that, Kathy, if I, if I didn't go to a granular enough label. Um, no, that, that's really interesting, actually. But um, So what would be a sprint? How would you define a, a, a sprint? Would it be a process that you're auditing? Would it be a set of processes, a set of controls? How would you define a sprint? Yeah. Okay. No, that that's a good question. So, so I mean, really, if you if you look at your overall scope for that specific internal audit review, uh, you know, there might be uh, three or four or five, can I say, uh, scope items within the scope, right? And the sprint is when you take that subset of a scope. So maybe one or two of the scope items. And you nearly package them into a sprint that you now go into complete first before you start the next item of, of the scope. You know, so let's say, for example, if if you look at a, a review of outsourcing oversight and governance, right? So your scope might include all of the building blocks of outsourcing uh, oversight process being, you know, you have a defined governance framework, you do your initial and periodic risk assessment, you do your initial and periodic due diligence, you have oversight of uh, monitoring the service delivery, etc. So a sprint could be that you say, okay, sprint number one is going to be on the initial uh, risk assessment and the periodic risk assessment process. And you nearly complete the mini audit on that sprint and you tell management what your findings are in respect of that before you start with a new piece. So what would happen then, Kathy, is that, you know, you know, within a couple of days, as soon as you finish that sprint, management will know what are the gaps in our risk assessment process rather than having to wait right until the end of the audit, which could be five weeks later before they get that information. Okay, so a really dynamic um, mm. process, actually. Have you ever audited a non-regulated business? Um, I know you say a lot of your experience is, is in regulated, but or maybe less regulated services. And could you describe for our listeners the impact being regulated has on the process of conducting an audit, the responsibilities of an internal audit function? What I would say is I have not audited a non-regulated business but how an either, if you go back to the early part of my career when, you know, financial services was regulated, but the regulator was not as prescriptive in issuing guidelines and framework and dear CEO letters around what their expectations were. I think, you know, so... When you did an internal audit, in many cases, you, you, you certainly did not have as many reference points uh, as you would have today. So uh, I think the impact for me uh, of that, you know, evolution in, in financial services is in Ireland, and I suppose in the wider Europe, is that in one way, the internal audit function's role has become easier in the sense that you do not have to try and convince the business why a certain control is needed. You know, we, we all are clear that the control is needed uh, 
but it, it wasn't as set in a, a piece of guideline or a DRCO letter from the regulator. So I think certainly all of this has made our jobs easier because if you have it that the regulator is basically prescribing that that's the expectation, it is easier to convince, you know, a first line uh, person if they are maybe a little bit apprehensive of implementing and controlled, that it is needed. I think on the other hand, uh, you know, of processing, on the process of conducting an audit, I would say, you know, the for, inter, for a head of internal audit, there is now an increased expectation that you have to be a lot more aware of many expectations of the regulator when you go and do an audit. So it's sort of, you know, it's a double-edged sword. In the one hand, it makes your life easier, but in the other hand, there is a lot of guidance that that you now have to be aware of when you do an internal audit. Thanks, Anlo. And now that you've got um, hopefully a good number of the compliance community listening to you, what would you say to them um, that they could do to make your role easier? Hey, yeah, another interesting question. Uh, so really, uh, the angle I'm going to take to this is, you know, looking at it from a combined assurance uh, assurance perspective. And I suppose it's, it's to make my role easier, but, but also to benefit the organization. And I think what I'm trying to say here is that where compliance functions have strong monitoring plans and where they also have uh, strong uh, frameworks around executing what we would call themed reviews, that certainly makes internal audits life easier. And it's also an opportunity where we can look to what the compliance function is doing. And for that reason, maybe do an audit less frequently in a certain area. So, you know, the, the classical example could be, for example, if you looked at themed reviews, that if the compliance function has a very strong framework and process of doing a themed review of, let's say, uh, AML processes, you know, that is something that uh, internal order might have to review their framework and their approach to doing those reviews. And if internal audit feels comfortable with that, internal audit can less frequently look at AML processes. So I think that's probably uh, the key area where I see where compliance can really help internal audit in the wider organization is where they have robust approaches for doing uh, their own monitoring uh, of first-line controls as well as themed reviews. You mentioned earlier that uh, you look at your compliance universe, uh, including governance, and as a, I suppose, a governance function, really, um, in, in the second line, how do you audit a compliance function? Yeah. So, so what we would do, the first audit, if, if, you know, if I've never looked at a compliance function at all, the first audit I will always do is to do a review just of the compliance uh, framework and processes to get that clearly helicopter view of what the function looks like. So, you know, when we do that type of review, we will look at, you know, the roles and responsibilities, the the reporting lines, all of that governance pieces around the compliance function. We would also then look at things like their themed reviews, their monitoring plans, 
you know, how do they monitor upstream regulation? And then very important, you know, the reporting that they they do uh, to the, the board and uh, compliance committees that need it. So, so that would be, and I say, one of the core audits we would always do. Then in addition, of course, we would look at specific uh, processes that the compliance function oversee as a second line. So, you know, classical ones would be that we would audit fitness and probity, a framework and review, we would look at AML uh, frameworks and processes. So that's basically the two levels we would go to, uh, Cassie, that it's either the totality of the function, you know, just from a governance perspective, uh, how is it designed? And then also for those sort of uh, bespoke areas where the compliance oversee those processes that we do a deep dive into it. The other classical one, sorry, is also to say, you know, things like uh, the complaints process and, and framework it is also one we look at uh, often and as, as well. Thanks. And what do you think of the three lines of defence as a risk management model? Do you see advantages or disadvantages? Has it proven as a working model? Would you modify it if you, if you, if you could? Uh, so could you give us our thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think, listen... As a as an overarching statement, I think the three lines of defence uh, model has worked well, and it is very widely accepted uh, not only by uh, you know uh, companies in industry, but but also by by regulators. I mean, it is a very logical process that people can logically follow. <laughs> you know, where you have your first line, that's the working engine, and that uh, the controls. And the ownership lies there, but you, that you have these oversight and second line to make sure that the first line do what they're supposed to do. I think that the other thing that the three lines uh, introduce very well is, you know, again, historically, if you look before this sort of three lines of defense model, you always had pervasive processes, you know, processes that's, that's quite difficult to put within a specific uh, business function that didn't have a natural place to go to. And I think, you know, the second line of defense, that that line uh, has really accommodated that. And I suppose to give you an example of those processes, the ones that jumped in mind would be processes like outsourcing oversight or, you know, uh, operational risk management or things like uh, conduct risk. We, you know, the, the conduct uh, risk and how uh, clients are being treated from a conduct perspective is pervasive through the business. So I think in that sense, uh, the three lines of defense also um, added a lot of value. If I look at, you know, how it should be modified, and what I might say there is is maybe to say, I think at the moment it, it's, it, it's where it should be. But I do think if, if we look into the future, Cassie, it, it will evolve dramatically in my mind uh, if you look into the future 10 years from now I think with technology and you know the way I see things going is that controls and the assurance of those controls are going to move much closer to the process itself through digital capabilities that you will try to build the control into the system if I can put it like that so that rather than a human being have to go and face the control that can be circumvented 
that the human being only has to review exception reports, for example. So I think the second and the third lines focus is going to move a lot more to, to risk sensing, to, to reviewing exceptions, and that humans are only used where, you know, judgment is needed. So I would say, although the, the three lines of defense model will remain in my mind, I just think what the people in those teams do will change dramatically 10 years from now. Thanks, Anno. Interesting. Like uh, your colleagues uh, at compliance, internal audit are always having to face up having difficult conversations with stakeholders. Have you had any challenging interactions or discussions with stakeholders? And how did you handle them and, and, and what did you learn from them? Yeah, I, I think, listen, it, it goes without saying, if you're a internal order, you go into challenging discussions uh, because, you know, the nature of what you do is to critique control environments. And, you know, many times you'll have to tell the, the owner of that uh, control environment that something is not fit for purpose. And that in itself, it, it, it's an emotional conversation for those uh, process owners. So... I mean, the way I normally handle them, I think, is, is one, you have to go in with a calm mindset. Very important is to have a fact-based conversation. So if you if you raise a finding or a weakness, you know, that, that re you really base it on the facts that you're very clear on exactly what happened within the organization, but the, that you then also bring, you know, your insights from other jurisdictions, your insights from other peer organizations, your experience, any data you would have analyzed uh, to the table that, that the person really understands why that finding uh, is so important. Because I think in many cases, uh, that's the key thing, that people are resistant to accepting a finding that you might rate high because they don't clearly understand why you rate it high. So that that's definitely, in my experience, you know, if you bring that to the table, it really helps the conversation. I think that the other thing is also, you know, just to always create a safe environment where it is very clear that all you are trying to do is to implement the best control environment that you can uh, that it is not about beating up anybody or, you know, calling out anybody for doing anything wrong. And, and when you have that safe space, uh, again, the stakeholders is more accepting of findings. We spoke earlier about our stakeholders and, of course, the board is a key stakeholder for both internal audit and, and compliance. So have you any practical thoughts as how you would influence a board when you need to? Yeah, I think, listen, the, the board and, and especially the, the INEDs from my perspective, uh, just to call it out, you know, that they, because of their experience from other boards and other clients, um, they they have a wealth of experience and, uh, you know, examples themselves. So I think the first thing I want to say is that for me, again, the interaction with the, the boards are iterative. And that you knew that I influenced them, and they maybe influenced me. Um, that that we soundboard, especially you know, in the case of head of internal audit, where you 
you have one-to-one conversations with the audit committee chair, for example, you know, that's a, a great forum for those soundboarding exercises. I think the way I, I influence them is, is probably, you know, a little bit similar to the previous question is that uh, to use your experience, to use your, your peer insight and to to also influence them that if, if they are maybe, you know, indecisive on which way to go on a topic, that you bring that experience of what went wrong in other organizations that you might have worked with or that you read up on or, or whatever. It also sometimes gives them a perspective because I, I do think... Um, Certainly, the INETs I've dealt with, they really uh, appreciate uh, a well-informed perspective when there's a difficult decision to take. Once upon a time, many, many, many years ago, I I was an auditor as well. And I remember, you know, the the key thing was independence that was sort of drummed into even back then. Um, So how do you walk the fine line of keeping an independent mindset while maintaining relationships um in order to to influence that that's an excellent question and and you know the whole topic of independence is is many times uh, you know a topic of contention and i think the first thing i would like to say at this juncture about independence is that you know in the uh, independent mindset it is only in my mind and independence it, it's the freedom of any bias right that still means you can have a very independent mindset, but it can still allow you, you know, to to share your insights with uh, the first line, to share your experience, to, to give them advice, you know. So I think for me, the first thing is that I, I really, I'm a strong advocate of a, a good aid of internal audit and a good internal audit function should be able to support the business with, with very strong advice and a point of view without impairing the independence. And, you know, the way I walk that line of the independent mindset is probably first absolute awareness that you need to maintain that mindset. And what I do from a practical perspective, Cassie, is, you know, to, to always challenge myself to sort of, you know, apply this Irish Times front page scenario to say, if what I'm doing here and the way I'm dealing here would be in, on the front page of the Irish Times tomorrow, would it pass mustard or would I, would I look at it and feel I did something wrong? So I think it is that awareness, absolutely. And then, um, you, you know, the, the other thing is also, I do think if you're within an organization, you do have to uh, maintain your your distance a little bit from a personal perspective with the first line. I mean, it, it, that, that, that's always been my approach. It is very difficult if you're very friendly with people in the first line, if you then have to go and do an audit later on and, you know, find findings that they might not like to be found. You know, so I, I do think, again, if you're a head of internal audit in professional services, it's, it's easier because you are a little bit more removed from the organization. But if you're within a business, and it probably applies, you know, to compliance as well, 
that you want to be there to support the business. But you always have to remember that you are the second line or you are the third line. Now, we're we're coming to the end of our, our discussion, Anlo, and just um, just to briefly touch on SEER and the accountability framework and just what are your thoughts about what do you, what what change do you think it'll bring about and do you think it might make your job a little bit easier make those subject to it uh more risk averse yeah listen I, I mean from my perspective i see any framework that will enforce or allow clearer allocation of accountability and responsibility it is in my mind it's always helpful I do think, you know, the question around will it make people more risk averse, it's a little bit yes and no, right? Because I think on the one hand, many times when people are uh, slow to make a decision or, you know, averse to making a decision, is if, if they're at all unclear about how does the outcome of that decision impact them or what is their accountability vis-a-vis that decision. So I think if people have the clarity, the crystal clear clarity on their accountability and what uh, that accountability means for any decision they take, they can nearly take it in a clearer mindset. (laughs) Uh, And then, you know, will it make people more risk-averse? I I would probably say, I won't say it will make them more risk-averse, but I nearly think they might pause because it's more in their face, maybe, that I'm accountable for this. Um, but again, it'll probably allow them to make a better informed decision. Uh, so in general, I think it, it will be positive from where I sit. And, you know, even as an internal auditor, um, it is always easier to audit a process or to order the governance framework when accountability and, and roles and responsibilities are very clearly delineated. Yes, I think it'll also bring risk appetite into sharp focus as well. They need to be clearly defined so that decisions are made within risk appetite and are defensible. Yeah. yeah. So final question, Anne, though, looking to the next 10 years, what would be the, the challenges and opportunities, do you think, for financial services and professionals in it and, and internal audit as well. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll summarise it with one word and that's complexity. Um, you know, really because of the, the digital environment we're in, um, I, I really think that processes will become more complex and regulation will become more complex because of more complex processes. So, the challenges for the professionals, are, I suppose, is to keep up with that uh, com- complexity uh, that, you know, you, you'll probably be forced uh, at some point uh, to become more specialised. I think the generalist might die a slow death. Uh, you will just have to be more specialised because things are more complex. Um, and definitely because of the complexity, as I say, there's increased regulation and increased regulation of course, <laughs> it, it gives more responsibility and more complexity to the work we do as financial services professionals. Thanks, Anlo. Um, and, and that concludes our discussion. And, and I really enjoyed that. That was a really wide-ranging discussion um, and insight into, into internal audit and how it, and how it attracts the rest of the organisation and, and with, with compliance. Um, 
So thank you very much for that uh, and for sharing your insights and expertise uh, on this really important topic, actually, for, for compliance professionals. And thanks to you, our listeners, for listening to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I do hope that you find the podcast interesting and useful. We would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.